0: A lot of people are going to be thinking more about their reelection in connection with how they vote on a budget deal. Than about their actual job of appropriating money. And I think the really discouraging thing about these last minute negotiations, even though I value them, this needs to get done. We are we are not going to be in a good place if Nancy Pelosi and Steve Mnuchin do not get a deal that they can get passed and that the president will agree to. And I would hate to be Steve Mnuchin, not knowing if my boss is going to sign off on what I ultimately negotiate, right? There's always that factor of The administration can negotiate something and the president can change his mind at the last minute. It's happened a lot of times. This is Sarah. This is Beth. You're listening
1: to Pantsuit Politics, the home of
0: grace-filled political conversations.
1: restorative weekend after what was a pretty difficult week in the news last week. To be honest and forthright, it's not looking a lot better this week. And that's what we're going to talk about in the main segment, that it's a big week on Capitol Hill between the Mueller testimony and budget negotiations. So we're going to deep dive into that in the main segment of the show. Before we get started, we're going to tackle news from around The Globe, including protests in Hong Kong and Puerto Rico, we will be talking about Beth's big news that she dropped on Instagram on Friday. Tried to bury it. How'd that work? It didn't uh, go out with the trash in quite the way I anticipated, (laughs) but it's fine. It's good. It's okay. Uh, Before we get started, there's a couple news items. A few months ago, I put out a call for the hiring of a children's and youth minister at my church and found the most amazing candidate through the Pantsuit Politics community. And I thought, hey, we shouldn't be the only ones able to tap this amazing community when we have a job available or we're looking for something specific. So we're going to play around with classifieds in our weekly newsletter. But first, we wanted to put out just a little bit of a feeler. If you think that's something you'd be interested in, can you give, shoot me an email, sarah at pantsuitpoliticshow.com, Because we're going to be thinking about that and thinking about pricing. But this community is so amazing. And we have such a wide network of people and jobs and skill sets that I thought, man, I shouldn't be the only one able to, to access that community. So that's something we're thinking about right now. In addition, Beth, a few episodes ago, you said, if I lived in Texas, I would be down there helping. And we got a lot of email from Texas saying, help, I live in Texas and I want to help and I don't know what to do. So this is a perfect example of how we're going to tap the community. If you live in Texas or you have direct communication with a nonprofit who needs help, we have a lot of listeners looking for ways to help who live in Texas. And so we thought we'd put the call out. If you have that information and we can pass it along to all the people who emailed us and said, I live in Texas and I don't know where to start, that would be much appreciated.
0: also put a really helpful link to a bunch of organizations doing good work in texas in the show notes for you well sarah well let's start in hong kong because we've talked about hong kong on the podcast several times before just a brief recap hong kong and china have this dual sovereignty thing going on there's an agreement in place it's not a forever agreement that hong kong essentially gets to govern itself while still being sort of part of china And Hong Kong's administrator, who is very friendly with Beijing, created a firestorm when she put forth legislation that would enable people in Hong Kong to be extradited. And Hong Kong citizens thought, wait a second, that sounds like the Chinese government can start accusing all of us of all sorts of things that they don't like and causing us to disappear and so protests have been going on with remarkable consistency in hong kong people just keep showing up tens of thousands of people keep showing up to say we don't want this extradition law and by the way this administrator needs to go and the demands kind of keep growing because now hong kong's people are saying you are threatening our ability to self-govern and we're going to need to work that out
1: well, the administrator, Carrie Lamb, is not just friendly with China. She is in fact chosen by China. It's not like a democratic election for the people of Hong Kong. They have this really interesting agreement where, you know, China is providing them with some security and sort of a voice in foreign policy to a certain extent. And so they've they've worked out this weird agreement that is just temporary and I think for a lot of reasons, including economic ones. In fact, we'll put a link in the show notes to a great article in the New York Times that sort of pieces apart some of the economic pressures people who live in Hong Kong. I mean, Hong Kong is incredibly wealthy, but like many places in the world, there's a big divide between the wealthy and the poor. And what some of those pressures mean for the citizens of Hong Kong and why that's playing a role in the protest. So over the weekend, the protest turned violent First, some of the pro-democracy protesters vandalized the Chinese government liaison office, which is the first time that that's happened. They protested and occupied some government offices, but never vandalized them before. And the police fired tear gas and rubber bullets. But then in a really, really insane event, a group of pro-democracy protesters, and they wear black shirts, so they're called the black shirts, were leaving the center of Hong Kong going back to their homes i suppose and on while on the subway this these group of men in white shirts with their faces covered and with sticks attacked all these people like went after them anybody in a black shirt there was lots of live streaming more than 40 people were sent to the hospital there were reports that a woman with a child was being attacked It was really, really scary, and the police took their sweet time in responding to these attacks. So there's lots of fear in Hong Kong, lots of um, concern that these white-shirt protesters—or, I don't know, protesters not the word—white-shirt attackers were organized, were being paid by China, by being paid by the government. There's all kinds of sort of— Theories going around, but the video itself and just the event itself was really, really scary. And so the ratcheting up of these protests, of the events surrounding the protest, just seems to be increasing in Hong Kong. We also
0: have massive protests happening in Puerto Rico. The governor there, Ricardo Rossello, has been accused of incompetence, corruption, mm-hmm. mishandling funds. And then hundreds of pages of truly awful text messages have been published showing that he is unfit to lead on a variety of grounds. The text messages are homophobic, they're misogynistic, they're just ugly. There has been a corruption indictment against parts of his administration. The secretary of Puerto Rico's Department of Education and leader of its health insurance administration are charged with directing 15.5 million dollars in contracts to favored businesses. And that indictment was recently unsealed. It's a mess. The governor says that he will not seek reelection. The House of Representatives has created a committee to advise on whether he's committed impeachable offenses, but protesters are saying that is not good enough. They want his resignation and they want it right now. Puerto Rico has suffered so much that this political crisis in the midst of an ongoing effort to recover from Hurricane Maria is just, it's just tragic. It's awful that this is what's happening right now.
1: Well, it just seems like to me that it's, you know, it's reached a boiling point for lots of reasons. You know, Governor Ricardo Rossello is not the first corrupt politician in Puerto Rico. Even before Hurricane Maria, they had a terrible economic crisis, often as a result of the corruption of their government. And Hurricane Maria, obviously, was just... Such a tragic situation, such an accelerant on the feeling that we are helpless here. Our government is not helping us. It's not for us. It's not working for us. I mean, the government of Puerto Rico is still saying the death toll from Hurricane Maria was like 2,000 people. So you had people in these protests holding up signs that said 4,645, which is the death toll as calculated by a study at Harvard. And so this feeling that, like, you're not telling the truth about what's happening, what happened to us with Maria – You are taking money from funds meant to help us recover from this awful natural disaster. And then you're getting on these group texts and being awful about the people who suffered in Hurricane Maria and being dismissive and using terrible language in these group texts. You know, I don't think we've ever seen protests like this in Puerto Rico. And I think that the fact that you are seeing them for the first time is indicative of how terrible that the situation has been and how awfully these people have been mistreated and ignored. I got to say for both Hong Kong and Puerto Rico, for the Sudan, you know, there's a lot of really intense global crises. And we're all seeing the rise of authoritarianism and we're seeing all these, you know, terrible stories play out across the globe. But at the same time, I do think that what you're seeing is is a positive move, is a positive trend. You see protests, you see people coming out and saying, "No, that's not good enough. That's not good enough." And you see it in countries of all different backgrounds and economic situations. So you see, I mean, I think that this it's it's so easy to be overwhelmed by the chaos, by the escalating tensions at all these hot spots around the world. That, But we can also neglect to notice that there is really positive movements, people protesting, people, the protest demands being met to a certain extent. No, it's not perfect. And they're not, you know. When protests and we're done, but I do I am encouraged by the protests in Hong Kong and Puerto Rico. I am encouraged by what happened in Sudan and in other parts of Europe where people were protesting and said this corruption is unacceptable. We're not going to stand for it anymore.
0: On to Iran,
1: where there is less to be encouraged by.
0: (laughs) I did a nightly nuance on Monday night, walking you through a timeline of everything that's happened with Iran since the United States withdrew from the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action There has been a lot of activity in June and July with Iran. We've had cyber attacks launched by the United States in retaliation for Iran hitting one of our drones. It's just a provocation, retaliation, provocation, retaliation. That is happening right now with the United Kingdom because on July 4th, the United Kingdom and the territorial authorities in Gibraltar took an Iranian ship that they said was violating international agreements and sanctions in sanctions imposed by the EU. And so uh, British authorities like repelled from helicopters very dramatically onto that ship and took it. So things keep percolating about that ship. The United Kingdom and the authorities in Gibraltar agree that they're going to hold that ship for 30 more days. And a few hours later, the Iranian Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps repels from helicopters down onto a British ship. And Theresa May says, this is illegal. The IRGC says, no, you're violating some safety standards under international regulations. And we have every right to do this. She wants everybody released. And here we are. And then one day later, Iran comes out and says that they have found 17 Iranian citizens who were working as spies for the United States CIA. And all of those folks have confessed that that is in fact what they were doing and some of them are going to be executed. Mike Pompeo says, hey, Iran does a lot of lying. I would take this with a large grain of salt. And that is where we find ourselves as we sit down to record today.
1: Well, I think what's So important to remember about this escalation is because the United States maxed out every possible sanctions strategy available to us. There just aren't a lot of good options available to us, the United Kingdom or any European ally. To a certain extent, Iran has to know that. What are you going to do? You can't drop any more sanctions on us. You've done it all. You negotiated a deal. Then you left it, even though we were following it. And then you said, we're going to put all these sanctions until you negotiate with us another deal, which I don't know why they do that when we left the other deal for no reason. And so, you know, there's just, you know, the United States wants this basically like to go back to how it was in the 80s and 90s when you had the. Navy and the Air Force of multiple different countries, but particularly ours, basically policing the Strait of Hormuz, which I don't think the European countries are super psyched to do. But even that, I mean, you know, that's that's just bringing more force to an area that is already a powder keg. But again... I don't really know what other options are available to us because we cannot sanction. We've done the max amount of sanctions that we can. And so we've even named the, you know, Iranian National Guard a terrorist organization. And we've, you know, frozen the assets of the leaders. I mean, we literally when you put every chip available to you on the table, which I have to believe is what John Bolton was trying to do so that the only other option available to us was to use force. I, you know, you put everybody in a really tough situation. It's especially tough for the United Kingdom, given that,
0: bless her heart, Theresa May is still having to deal with this stuff, even though mm-hmm. she's going to be replaced shortly. So you've got, you've got a United Kingdom in the middle of its own kind of political nightmare mm-hmm. and now having to deal with Iran because the United States has been so aggressive in its pursuit of Iran. Other countries are going to get dragged into all this, right? There's just not another way. Someone has to come up with a pressure release valve here. Mm -hmm. Someone has got to find some room for everybody to be able to negotiate. Iran, of course, does terrible things in the world. I don't want to ever sound like we are saying poor, pitiful Iran in the midst of all this. Not at all. It's just that we've not given ourselves anywhere to go. In the way that we've exerted pressure in response to what Iran does, that is that is wrong in the world. I mean, just the just the article about how they're handling 17 of their own citizens immediately putting out statements to the press that these folks are going to be killed for what they've done allegedly. I mean, it's it is not a good place, but there are citizens of Iran who also want reform, who have been harmed by their own Country. And I think we always lump the Iranian people in with the Iranian leadership. We should not do that. And we should recognize that the more we squeeze them economically, the more we're empowering, I think, that leadership and harming the citizens of Iran who could be
1: our best ally in trying to create change in the country. Before we move on to compliment the other side, we had a couple emails. After some very difficult conversations we had last week about race, which were basically, should I feel guilty for being white? Should I feel bad for being a white person in the world? And I was thinking about these emails when I came across a really, really good post from Stacy Marie Ishmael. It's called, It is Time to Ask Very Hard Questions and to Take Very Rude Positions. And I thought it was so good, and it's not very long, I thought I would just read it. What I want, I suppose, is for you to feel guilt, not anger, too clean that, too easy to direct outward at a convenient target and thence to move on with one's day, not rage, unwieldy, unfocused, not indifference, you didn't earn that, you don't get to opt out of this one, not sadness because you didn't earn that either, nor even embarrassment because this isn't about a situation so much as it is about you, and not shame, too self-destructive, too prone to wallowing. So guilt, I want you to marinate for a long, long moment in the moral indecency of this present and specifically on the part you played to get us here. Focus, focus. Who did you erase? Who did you diminish? Who did you effortlessly plagiarize and replace? For whom did you fail to make room? Who did you accuse of taking up too much room? Who prompted you to clutch your purse and walk a little faster? Who did you find insufficiently deferential? Who did you describe as divisive? Who did you think needed to see the bigger picture? To whom did you counsel civility in the face of injustice? Who did you ask where they were from? Whose hair did you touch? Who did you not even see? Whose life didn't matter to you? Who did we fail to protect from the firing line because the bodies are piling up? What I want for you is to feel guilt because where there is guilt, there might be empathy. Where there is guilt, there might be a willingness to take responsibility. Where there is guilt, there might be an acknowledgment of personal accountability. Where there is guilt, there might be compassion, the decision to care. And where there is the conviction of a decision, there might be the will to act. Who we save from the fire this time, because everywhere there is the need.
0: We always get a lot of reaction when we talk about race on the podcast, and I completely understand that. And one of the reactions that probably tends to hit my inbox even more than yours, Sarah, is the sense that we go very left-leaning in those discussions. And what I want to say that I think is an extension of the prompt that you just laid out is that I don't see race as about left and right. And I think we make a mistake when those of us who have tended toward conservative policy over the course of our lifetimes, immediately get defensive in conversations about race and think of that as the left sort of overtaking the right. I think one of the reasons that our party and our country are in trouble is because we have said, you know, we're going to be defensive about race instead of acknowledging all of the problems that have historically plagued our country and all the damage our own government has done in creating an environment where people are discriminated against, where people are taken from, where people are held back economically, where people are incarcerated at inexplicably high rates. If we are not willing to be honest about where we are about race, then we cannot in good faith have discussions about what the best policies are to counteract that. That to me is the foundation. We have to get honest about where we are and then we can talk about differences and how we move forward from there. And more importantly, I think we can listen to people who've never been at the table to talk about how we move forward from here and who have suffered the consequences of some of those things. You know, Sometimes a question that I'm asking myself a lot lately is, should I sit on this board Or should someone replace me who has a different set of life experiences than I have? Because I'm looking around this room and seeing a lot of myself reflected in it. Maybe I should walk away from my seat at this table. And that is not saying I'm a terrible human being. It's just acknowledging things as they are and asking how can I participate in them in a way that helps solve the problem. I just don't think we need to be so defensive about this because... We all have a part to play in creating the problem, and we all have a part to play in creating new solutions to the problem. That's it, you know, and there is a lot of pain in that process. If you are a person who says, I want to move out of that pain, then step number one is to acknowledge that it's there. Sarah, who would you like to compliment this week?
1: I am complimenting the Trump administration on moving the Bureau of Land Management Headquarters from Washington, D.C. to Grand Junction, Colorado. OK, don't at me. I understand that there are probably a lot of very political motivations to this move, many of which I probably don't agree with. There's a lot of conjecture that this move is to weaken the department, to give corporate interest in our public lands a foot up. but. At the end of the day, 99 percent of the land the Bureau of Land Management manages is west of the Mississippi River. And Beth and I and friends of the podcast when we were in D.C. talked a lot about there's really no reason with technology that every government agency needs to be in Washington, D.C., It's a concentration of talent and wealth and power and perspective, just what we were talking about. So while I understand, I I do not agree with probably the motivations of this move, I do think it's a good idea to start breaking up the monopoly of federal agencies in the Washington, D.C. area and putting them around the country because it spreads some of that wealth and opportunity to other parts of the nation that really need it and that deserve a say in how our government is run. So I'm here for this move. I think it's a great idea. Well, I want
0: to spend just a minute talking about the Instagram post that I shared on Friday. And I will just read that post quickly for those of you who've not had an opportunity to see it. This week, I've had no desire to interact on social media. I've distanced from my inbox. With limited exceptions, I've avoided conversations about politics. Tough to do both in my line of work and in the world right now. The quiet has been necessary for me to get my thoughts and heart in order. It is a version of prayer. On Tuesday night, deep and quiet reflection, I watched the news pour in that only four Republicans voted in favor of condemning the president's go-back-where-they-came-from comments. I closed Twitter, opened Safari, and pulled up the Kentucky Secretary of State website. I read the rules. I asked myself a question. Beth, name a Republican in the federal government you wish to support in 2020. I came up empty. Another. Beth, name a Republican in Kentucky you're proud to support. I struggled. My local representative does a good job with constituent communication and service. I appreciate him. Is that enough? Not for me. Not now. Not in light of a crowd chanting, send her back. Not when the GOP has effectively shut down dissent and debate within the party. So I made the change. We are a closed primary state, and I wish to participate even in primaries that don't represent me well. It was both a huge deal and not a deal at all. I am the same person I was on Monday. The same person who cried actual tears over Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation. The same person who believes single-payer health insurance carries grave risk and thinks a free college program will be the government subsidizing a failing system. The same person who believes we're engaged in too many endless wars and without proper congressional authorization. The same person who wishes all of life could suspend for a while so that I could hold toddlers at the border 24-7. There is not a label that fits. So I will let the old one go. And hold the new one loosely and keep searching my heart for now to do my best work in the world. So there was a lot of reaction to that. And I want to say how much I appreciate the spirit of that reaction. And I also want to share that this was a decision that was very specific to me. I live in the reddest county in Kentucky The local Republican Party in my county is very committed to being a Republican group, which means buying into the president. You know, I do think it's fair to say that the Republican Party is Trump's party Mm -hmm. right now and for the foreseeable future. And so I don't see an opportunity where I live. And that's where these things really happen to change that. I also am both blessed and responsible to an audience that cares about my registration. And it is important to me to say in every way possible to people who feel a very real threat from this administration and from the kind of conversation it's creating in the world that I am with you And so I don't feel great about being a Democrat. I probably won't ever think of myself as a Democrat. Like, (laughs) it's just um, because I am so far from where the the progressive wing, the sort of base of the Democratic Party is as well. But in my circumstances, given the opportunities I have, where I live, the primaries that I want to vote in in 2020, I am very excited to go work my butt off for Amy McGrath. You know, and I'm genuinely excited about that. It's not just I want Mitch McConnell to be retired. I genuinely think she is the right person to represent Kentucky in the Senate. So there are a lot of factors that went into this decision. I don't want anyone to feel judged by it or abandoned by it or, um, or to think that I believe this is the only right way or to think that this is going to change the tenor of our discussions here. This this is, like I said, it was both not a big deal and a big deal because it's hard to change any kind of label that you've applied to yourself for a long time, especially when you've applied as publicly as I've applied mine. But I'm still the same person I'm just finding that the Republican box is getting smaller and smaller. People who put themselves in that box love to tell me every day in a variety of ways that I don't fit into it. So cool. Have your box. It can be the really small one that you have. I'm going to continue to represent my views and try to be as honest as I can. I hesitated about sharing this because I know that it's going to bring up emotion for people. It felt wrong to me to do anything other than be really transparent with you about what I've done and why I've done it. And so there you have it. When
1: you texted me, (sighs) it caught me off guard because you're usually um, pretty careful, and I don't want to say impulsive. I mean, I'm the impulsive one in the group, but this it did feel. Was did it feel impulsive to you, or had you been thinking about it for a long time? It felt like the last straw to me.
0: You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It just felt like. When we had our retreat, we talked about how I'm so uncomfortable with being labeled from the right because I feel like what the right means has changed. Mm-hmm. And it's gone in a direction that I'm uncomfortable with. And then as I've started watching how 2020 is shaping up and seeing right. that in where I live, again, the, the people that I could vote for here, I don't have Republican representatives that I'm excited about. Or that I even feel good about, honestly.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, you know, someone asked me this week, like, why is, why is what the president says such a big deal to you when long list of things on the left are not? And my, the only way I can answer that, honestly, is because he's the president. I don't spend Mm -hmm. a bunch of time thinking about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez because 434 people have exactly the same power and opportunity that she has. One person has the power of the presidency. And so, yes, I give a lot of weight and consideration to what he's doing, especially when the whole infrastructure of the Republican Party has lined up behind him in such a defensive way. Yeah, he is driving a lot of my decision making right now because he is the president and we only have one of those. And it's the most powerful person in the country and maybe in the world. Yes, I think the media covers every little thing he does in a in a gross level of detail. But that's because he's the president. There's just the Mm -hmm. one of him, you know. And so when that rally happened and. Republican leaders in Congress decided we're going so far in with this president that we're not willing to say this is wrong.
1: That was that was the last straw for me. Yeah, I'm really fascinated by the language. Even we have a lot of listeners who talk about the 2020 candidates and then, of course, the the squad, which is a term I really hate to use, but it's so quick and easy. I've just sort of curious about it, I don't have the same reaction to them. And I think so much of how people respond to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, to Elizabeth Warren, even to Bernie, it's a media stereotype of their policy positions instead of what they actually represent or the power they actually have. I would like to do a deeper dive to that on the show. But um, we, we had a listener reach out and say, I think at the end of the day, people are going to have to be more concerned with racism than they are afraid of socialism and i thought that was such a good way to put it it's you know that that balance that but what aboutism that we really hate but i think what you did is is such a good reflection of what we do try to do in the show which is to articulate our values and prioritize things instead of just doing the back and forth of your sides worse but your sides worse but your sides worse but to pull it out and say, no, but this thing is representative of my values and it is the most important thing to me. You know, I think being able to articulate the way you did and to say, you know, to to say this far and no further is is really important and something all of us are going to have to do more and more with this race baiting. Re-election strategy—he's clearly going to take. Um, people were shook, man. People were texting me, wanting to talk to me about it, and it was really funny. Like I did not—it caught me off guard. But then I was like, hmm, you know, I—I I talk to you so much, and to me, our political labels are such a small part of what we do here, and you know, we've always said, you know, we're not pundits just echoing the party talking line. Talking points. And so in that way that it didn't surprise me in the same way that or I don't think it's that big of a deal in the same way. I don't feel. Any sort of. Allegiance or desire to. Be identified or defend everything Democrats do, I just it's it's like we're so past that at this point, why are we still doing that to each other? I think people wanted me to be more celebratory But, you know, I don't really think that's the point. I think the point is you changing your registration to Democrat is way more reflective of the Republican Party than it is of you and your values or, you know, your political persuasion. I mean – I, you know, as someone who's been talking to you for several years about your values and your politics, I don't see a big change. It's the Republican Party that changed, not you.
0: Yeah. I mean, our system is so silly. I think of it this way. If I'm at a train station right now and I don't bring anything else to this exercise, I just see a couple of trains. And one of those is going where the, the GOP is going right now. And it has this sense of we want to keep immigrants out of the country, We have taken these four freshman congresswomen who, as Nancy Pelosi says, are just four votes, and we've decided to make them the face of the party because we think they're going to scare America. And we are going to spend lots and lots of money in places that don't really benefit anyone except our friends. And we're going to talk about diplomacy on Twitter every day. I'm not getting on that train. I look at the... Democrats train and I I see it as kind of a mess and people arguing about how far it needs to go in which direction. I don't love a lot of what's on that train and I fear for the concentration of power it will put in the federal government ultimately. But I don't see it being a place that is closing its doors to people because of characteristics that they are not responsible for. And so if I can only choose between those two trains, which is the choice that Kentucky makes if you want to participate in our primaries, then I'm going to get on the Democrats train. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's just that's all it is, you know, and within that train, I'm not going to be the loudest or the most popular or most welcomed voice. And that is okay. Here in our democracy, the best opportunity that I have is to do what we try to do on the show Be informed, be thoughtful, share my perspective with people, ask good questions, and hope that in some way that puts something good into the river that we're all drinking out of together, knowing that it is just a tiny bit of that river. And I feel like that's all I can do. And that's why, you know, to me, this is it's not cause for celebration in the sense of like, I have seen the light or been persuaded or something like we got her. I have the (laughs) same views I feel like honestly, I have the same views that I had in 2015 on most subjects. Of course, that I, I've learned things and evolved and grown and changed, but I don't want it, this to seem like, oh, I'm I'm suddenly um, embracing the Warren agenda, right? Um, it is. I am rejecting the Trump agenda. That's what it is. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll come right back.
1: and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura
0: It is a busy week on Capitol Hill, so we're going to go back a little bit to tell you about something the House did last week and then talk about what's on its agenda this week, which is a lot. So first, I wanted to share this message from Shannon. She said, I just saw that the minimum wage increase has passed the House. I would love to hear you two discuss this matter. While I understand that a wage increase may be needed on the coast and in major cities, I know that $15 an hour minimum would be devastating to small business owners in middle America. The differences in cost of living across our country may be too great to justify a federal minimum wage. So, Sarah, we've talked about this before, and we'll put a link to our most recent discussion about it in the show notes.
1: And then... Talk about
0: what's going on in the House right now.
1: So the current federal minimum wage is $7.25. That was in 2009. That seems bananas to me. I don't care where you live. Who could survive on $7.25 an hour? Now, research, there isn't lots of great research on this. And then, I mean, it's not all conclusive. I listened to a really long... um, Freakonomics about minimum wage hikes, and you do have some job losses, but there's not a really good prediction. And that makes sense to me because this is going to mean something very different depending on where you are. So as you said... We're currently at $725. The Raise the Wage Act that passed the
0: House would raise the minimum wage to $15 by 2024. So it is over a time period. And then it would tie future changes to the minimum wage to changes in median workers' pay. So that if overall wages are going up in the country or going down, the minimum wage would follow suit. This passed the House 231 to 199. And the partisan breakdown is that six Democrats opposed it and three Republicans supported it. Other Otherwise, it broke down on party lines. Those six Democrats are McAdams of Utah, Cunningham of South Carolina, Brindisi of New York, Horn of Oklahoma, Schrader of Oregon, and Torres Small of New Mexico. And I was reading a little bit about some of the opposition here. There was a debate over whether the ramp should be five years or six years to a new minimum wage. Um, McAdams of Utah was proposing a formula that would tie the minimum wage increase to to the local market so you would look at cost of living place by place so it's not that all the people who voted against this are like we don't want higher wages for workers it's that they had a different way of getting there the three republicans who supported it were fitzpatrick of pennsylvania Hurd of texas and smith of new jersey and then our lone independent in the house justin amash voted no on this increase
1: will Hurd be going his own way a lot of de- a lot of times these days it's probably getting lonely being will heard. It's got to be a hard time to be well heard. So
0: as you said, Sarah, we don't know what this will do to the economy. The CBO has settled on a range of possibilities, and the median prediction is that 17 million people will see their wages go up and about 1.3 million jobs could be cut in the process. I think a really good part of this bill, which I – primarily disagree with but i think a good part of it is that it removes an exemption that had previously allowed employers to pay disabled workers less than the minimum wage at the time that exemption was passed we had a very condescending view of disabilities and felt like most people with disabilities aren't going to be hired it's better for them to work some at a super low wage than not at all and so it's okay to pay them sometimes just pennies on the hour which obviously is a place that we need to move forward from and that our understanding has helped us move forward from. And so I'm really happy to see that exemption gone.
1: I mean, I feel like about minimum wages hikes, I do think they should raise it. You know, if we're not going to index it to raise automatically, then they're going to have to come back every once in a while and raise it. I don't know if this should be the thing we really focus on to change people's economic realities because, well, I mean, it's not going to go anywhere in the Senate and Donald Trump said he'd veto it. But um, I just think that that there is legislation we can pass and regulations we could change that would have a bigger economic impact on people um, if we're going to spend our political capital on on really trying to shrink that gap between the rich and the poor because the data on Minimum wage hikes is just not that great as far as the impact. So I don't necessarily think it's bad. I just think there are other things we could be doing instead.
0: I don't think that we should have a federal minimum wage, which I know is a controversial position. I just don't think it's what the federal government should exist to do. And I think states and communities know better what you need to have a good living. I do think states and communities should set minimum wages, particularly localities. You know, I think it's a, an important thing to look at where you are and say, what does it take to be in an affordable housing situation? What does it take to buy groceries here? What does it take to do good transportation here, you know, to get from place to place? So for me, this is something that should be done at the community level instead of the federal level.
1: But what do you do for communities who don't do anything, who refuse to set one or keep it really low and never change it? Seems like we should at least have a bottom one.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that community then has to decide if that's acceptable to them and change their leadership if it's not. I really believe in paying people fairly for what they do. But having spent a lot of my career working on issues of pay in a workplace as part of human resources, I have seen how these budgets get set. And there are just so many unintended consequences when you mess with how you pay people and you add layers of regulation onto that. And I I don't want to be doomsday about this because I don't think the data supports the Republican position of like, this is socialism and it's going to be a job killer. I don't think the data bears that out. What I do know to be true is that most people who set the salaries or the hourly wages in a workplace are not the same people deciding overall how much of the organization's budget will be allocated to people. That decision gets made at a different level and then you get that number and you hear, make it work. And How that happens depends on the size of the business, where the business is in its life cycle. I mean, a $15 minimum wage for a brand new business is really different than for McDonald's, right? And so I just think there are a lot of complicating factors and that's why this should be done in local communities. And local communities that don't step up to that task, I think need to get more engaged in their process to figure out what they wanna do.
1: I just think that's tough. When you're talking about people who are actually affected by the minimum wage. I should have read a really good article we'll put in the show notes about a woman who a journalist who went and worked a retail, a call center, and one other minimum maybe uh, Uber or ride sharing, um, minimum wage do- job. And, you know, like the what the shifts are predicted by algorithms so you can't depend on it. You're living with constant low grace stress. You're probably working more than one one minimum wage job. And so to say, hey, step up your involvement in the political process to get your local community to raise the minimum wage. I mean, the people most affected by this don't have the time, energy or money to exert a lot of influence inside our political process. I just think that's a really big ask. That's my concern.
0: It's a big ask, but it's an easier ask on the local level than at the national level. And look, there's a part of what I'm saying that's really bad for business. It's much easier for McDonald's to have a national standard for what it pays people. But $15 is probably not enough in New York City and Washington, D.C. and um, Chicago. And $15 is probably... More than a McDonald's in other areas can pay, you know, but McDonald's has the capacity to spread that cost and McDonald's is responding to public pressure in the marketplace. They actually did not lobby against this change this time because so many people are supportive. I mean, let me be clear. I don't want anybody trying to live on seven twenty-five dollars a day anywhere. I don't think that that's a fair wage. I just am saying I think we are – better equipped to deal with the reality of what people get paid and how far those dollars go in our communities and it is a big lift everywhere it's hard but a lot of what we need to do in our country is hard and i think getting out there and doing the work can pay off in in really good and surprising ways where everybody works together um, instead of trying to dictate all this from dc so Another hard thing coming up is the federal budget. And Nancy Pelosi and Steve Mnuchin have been working together on this for weeks. I feel like every day Sarah and I read the Politico playbook and every day there's kind of they're they're getting together again. They're hammering things out. You know, everybody feels like there's some progress being made. But what they need to do is set the budget levels and raise the debt ceiling. And if they don't get these things done, there are some automatic cuts that are going to go into place.
1: Cuts in all different areas that nobody likes. Military cuts, social spending cuts, some really draconian cuts.
0: So they have three days to get this done before the August recess. And the House rules require that the bill be out there for 72 hours before it gets voted on. So the clock is ticking.
1: Well, and we have Bob Mueller coming to Congress this week, too. So people are a little occupied. You know, for a long time, what was what was caught up in this Raising the debt limit budget negotiation. They were also trying to get the new NAFTA. It seems like they've totally abandoned that.
0: Yeah. And I read that the president's comments about the four women congressmen that he keeps attacking have also kind of tanked the possibility of getting Congress on board around NAFTA. Mm -hmm. Like The cost of trying to work with the administration for Democrats keeps going up. Politically. Right. Right.
1: Well, and it seems like that they've they've abandoned some of the of what they wanted in the budget deal. And I have to wonder if that's a result of that as well. I mean, I think we get so focused on when he says these awful, terrible things that either, you know, from one side, it's this is just a media narrative. And, you know, people are too hard on him or from the other side, um, there becomes talk of impeachment or whatever. But I mean, every one of these news cycles where he says something that's race baiting or offensive exacts a political cost on his ability to negotiate with Congress, which is his actual job. Um, His job right now is not to get reelected. His job is to run the country and to do that with the co-equal branch of Congress. And every time he does this, I mean, poor Steve Mnuchin, and I never thought I'd say those words, but... You know, it just makes his ne- his ability to negotiate Mr. Master Negotiator that much harder, because like you said, it, it becomes it's he's toxic politically to his own party, much less to any Democrat seen as um, negotiating or making compromises with the administration. And it's the same thing for Congress. Their
0: actual job, the one that the Constitution gives them, is appropriating money and A lot of people are going to be thinking more about their reelection in connection with how they vote on a budget deal than about their actual job of appropriating money. And I think the really discouraging thing about these last minute negotiations, even though I value them, this needs to get done. We are we are not going to be in a good place if Nancy Pelosi and Steve Mnuchin do not get a deal that they can get passed and that the president will agree to. And I would hate to be Steve Mnuchin not knowing if my boss is going to sign off on what I ultimately negotiate, right? There's always that factor mm-hmm. of the administration can negotiate something and the president can change his mind at the last minute. It's happened a lot of times. but
1: Well, and that's what, that's what Mitch McConnell definitely tries to prevent. You know, like he, his big thing is like, I'm not going to spend – and it's not st- – not a dumb strategy. I'm not going to spend political capital on my own or my Republican senators I'm trying to protect for him to come forward and say he's not going to do it. So that's why there's been a lot of times like he's been hesitant because he's like, I'm not going to do a thing until he says he'll sign off on it. Although, I mean, good luck with that. He'll say he will and then we'll change his mind.
0: What discourages me about these last minute negotiations, though, is every time the answer that promotes compromise is just spending more money on everything. Mm-hmm. So where these cuts would go in and spend less money on everything, our, our answer to finishing a deal is always more of everything. And so when I think about where we are with the debt and where we are with all of our programming, the idea that we're just going to keep spending more and more on stuff that no one is 100% happy with, it's, it is is so discouraging. And, and it makes you realize, like, in terms of prioritization – Starting on the budget process much sooner, I think, would benefit our country as a whole in ways that we can't even conceive of. And public support around that is never going to be as high as it is for all of these other measures that Congress is taking up. And it's just that that part of our democracy does not work very well.
1: Well, I mean, they're putting out there that if he's reelected, he'll feel free to make dramatic spending cuts to the budget. So, I mean... I don't know. But I think selling that to your Republican Congress people as, oh, just we'll just all spend right now. And well, and also, can I just I just really want to reject the narrative that Republicans are the only one that cares, that they're only people who care about fiscal responsibility. They clearly don't. This this Republican Congress does not. But also because I really hate the idea that Democrats don't care about the budget or fiscal responsibility or. The national debt and just I hate that narrative because I'm a Democrat and I, in fact, care much care very deeply about those things. But, you know, I think they're selling him like, oh, don't worry, we'll just keep spending. But when he gets reelected, we'll really double down and do all those cuts. I mean, whatever. I don't think that's true either. Okay, so the last big thing happening with Congress this week is bum, 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 Bob Mueller. Okay, two narratives. One, it's going to be a nothing burger. Or two, it's going to be a blockbuster. Which one are you subscribing to?
0: I think it's not going to be a blockbuster. I don't think he has a demeanor for it to be a blockbuster. And I don't think he's going to say anything other than what he has already said. And so in that way, and against the background of you have Democratic debates coming up, you have the president doing everything he can to distract from this testimony This testimony, in order to be accurate and complete, which I am certain Bob Mueller will want it to be, there's a lot of dry stuff to work through. It's just hard for me to imagine how this breaks through in a way that really changes anyone's mind about anything.
1: I don't know. I think that... So I've been working my way through the Mueller report very slowly. I did not read it all at once like Beth. Um, And... I don't know. I think I do subscribe a little bit to the idea that most people didn't read it. And because he didn't speak the entire time, then when he does speak, it will have more weight. And even if he is just talking about things that were in the report, because most people have not read the entire report, if they can craft this in a way that is not disjointed and creates an actual building narrative, which I'm not hopeful that they can do because they all want to do their own little thing in each minute. But I do think that there could be moments where he he's still just repeating what's in the report, but because most people didn't read it, it has impact.
0: That could be. I'm worried that the sideshow that the republican party will create through their yeah. questioning here is going to be more of the story because republicans are being reported to like be gathering this this case that this whole thing was biased from the beginning which is so silly it's not like robert Mueller was appointed and had the capacity to investigate just whatever he wanted to on earth there is mm-hmm. an order directing what he is to investigate and so you're going to hear these lawmakers trying to say well why didn't you look at this about hillary clinton or why didn't you look at that and it i think was pretty clearly outside his scope so that frustrates me i'm, I'm just tempering my expectations because i know that i'm going to be very disappointed in how this hearing is conducted and i really am worried that we're at a place where most folks are not open to the facts around what he investigated mm.
1: Well, I am very confident in Bob Mueller's ability to deal with their bullshit questioning. I'm trying to think of a nicer word, but I just really think that's it. Like, I think he'll handle that kind of stuff, like the bias of his team and stuff really well. In fact, I'm a little bit looking forward to his answers to those questions.
0: It'll be interesting to see how far people are willing to push on someone who's been so universally respected for so long, too.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's going to be must-see TV. That is for sure. Now, the impact of that musty TV, I don't know, but it's going to be musty TV.
0: We'll be back here on Friday to break it down for you.
1: Beth, what are you thinking about outside politics?
0: I'm really excited about a television show, which does not happen a lot for me, but HBO's years and years is all I want to watch, think about, talk about. I am in love with this concept. If you haven't seen anything about it, Years and Years is about a British family. It's a group of siblings and their grandmother who talk to each other a lot. And it fast forwards through their lives and shows you the political context in which they're living. And it makes all of these really interesting predictions about what the future looks like globally and about what British politics look like. Emma Thompson just marvelously plays this mashup of like a Marine Le Pen Donald Trump Nigel Farage kind of figure it's so So captivating to watch. And I don't know how they cram as much into 60 Minutes as they do in terms of character and plot development. I mean, I've watched four episodes of it, and there are so many different storylines going on. And I am heavily emotionally invested in all of them and in all of the characters. And so this is one of the rare times that I said to Sarah, you absolutely have to watch this thing.
1: So my husband and I watched two episodes last night um, it's really not your usual jam. It's nope. very heavy. Um, it's very intense. And I like dreamt some of some really weird, I had really weird dreams, like global conflict dreams. But I think what they're doing is is very interesting. Um, my husband was not psyched to be watching it because he was like, I have enough anxiety about the future. I really don't need them to play it out for me um, in a dramatic fashion. But I do think the sort of, the narrative structure of the show is really interesting it's getting a lot of buzz a lot of it's the most interesting thing on tv right now i had a lot of friends recommending it Um, i'm trying to talk myself out of just watching an episode while nicholas is at work today um and and making sure i'm a good spouse and wait for him to watch the the next two episodes but i'm totally in i can't wait to see how it plays out. i certainly can't wait to see how it ends that's for sure um i was gonna say you know i think i like it
0: even though it's not my usual jam like it is intense but there's nothing gratuitous about it It is not overkill on violence or sexual content or language or anything. It is just taking you through time with enough context for you to fill in all the dots. But it doesn't, like, rip your heart out over and over the way a lot of shows that everyone loves does. I feel like it moves enough that I'm really interested in the characters and where the story is going, and I don't feel tortured by any single moment of it.
1: Dude, I don't know. The end of that first episode is pretty stinking intense. It is all very intense. There, It is
0: high, high intensity. It's just intense in a way that I can handle because I feel like it's it's propelling somewhere instead of just like holding me in these really emotional moments. It does give me great anxiety for the future, though, because I think part mm-hmm. of its genius is I don't feel like they're overplaying their hand. Everything that happens does feel like a really logical extension of where things are today. It's near future. You know, it's not 100 years from now. It's five years from now, 10 years from now. And so I feel feel like they're being reasonable in their depiction of what that future could look like.
1: Well, while you were obsessing about the show about the future, and I started watching it as well, it was a very interesting compliment to what I've been thinking a lot about, which is history. I am reading... These Truths, A History of the United States by Jill Lepore. Have you heard about this book? I haven't. It is so good. Okay. It is a complete history of the United States, beginning with like 1492 Columbus all the way to present day, I think. Um, It's long. It's like a thousand pages long. But um, it's so brilliantly written, and I'm learning so much about the history and how we tell that story and what was really going on like one of the first things she talks about is the most interesting historical accident basically about columbus is that it was these western european countries that found america because well discovered it for their nations there were people already there obviously um because you know the story i'd always heard in history class is that Or maybe just the assumption I took from history classes that these nations were the most advanced seafarers and, you know, they were the most adventurous or whatever. And that's just not true. Like China, um, the Middle East, parts of West Africa were much more advanced as far as ships, compasses, maps. But the truth is, particularly with regards to the Middle Eastern countries or kingdoms, I guess is probably a better description, is that they were doing great in the trading and in the economy they were dominating so they had no need to go find other places it was these western european nations that were really failing in this economy and who wanted to go out and find another way to succeed which was really interesting and um, you know she spends a lot of time right now with the revolution about how slavery was always a part of the Equation, like, did you know that James Madison's grandfather was poisoned and killed by his slaves at the age of 37? I did not know that. Right? That's important and interesting, and in that over 47 of George Washington's slaves ran away. Like, there's all this interesting stuff right now about the um, Caribbean islands, the sugar plantations, and how basically, you know, and, and I never thought about it before. Why did the 13 colonies on the mainland? revolt under this tax situation and all these colonies on the Caribbean islands want to stay with the British. Well, it's because they were outnumbered from, with slaves to like eight to one and they wanted the British to protect them and keep putting down these constant slave revolts who were basically reading or hearing and listening some of the um, philosophy and political tracts coming out of the 13 colonies and saying, oh, yeah, well, we want liberty, too. Uh, It's so interesting and just, you know, has you completely rethinking the stories you heard and, you know, how we're still continuing these stories um, and how we're still sort of paying the price and living out the repercussions of these decisions. So, so good. And it's a really interesting compliment to years and years because there's a through line, I think, in a lot of. What's going on and um, how this plays out in our everyday lives is just so good. It has me thinking all the big thoughts. Well, we hope that you all are thinking
0: all the big thoughts, too. We appreciate you sharing them with us. We've received just so many phenomenal emails and social media comments lately. So thank you for all of that. Please keep it up. We will be back with you here Friday to talk about the Mueller testimony and whatever else pops up between now and then. And until then, keep it nuanced, you
1: Tim Miller, David McWilliams, Joshua Allen, Linda Rucker, Martha Bernatsky, Melanie Cravey, and Tiffany Hassler.
0: Our theme music is composed and performed by Dante Lima. The music under our ads is composed and performed by Dylan
1: Garvin. Learn more about our lives, live events that we're involved in, and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with members of the Pantsuit
0: Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.